Well, this morning we're continuing on, and in fact, we'll conclude our little two-week mini-series entitled, When Jesus Gives Bread That's Hard to Swallow. We did about the first two-thirds of John chapter 6 last week, and we'll finish it up this morning. We're endeavoring to learn from Jesus by taking Him at His Word, which is really a simple and life-changing way to study the Bible. You just take Jesus at His Word and let Him affect you and let Him change you and let Him uh, shape your view of Him, your view of yourself, and ultimately your view of God. Well, the setting for John chapter 6, if you go ahead and, and turn there, we'll do a little bit of review and then we'll jump into some new territory. But just want to remind everyone, and perhaps if you weren't here last week, that the overt aim of the Apostle John in penning this gospel, according to John, is evangelistic. He is writing with the expressed intention of the conversion of those people who would read it. He says in John chapter 20, these things have been written so that you would believe, and in believing you will have life in his name. So overtly evangelistic, John is continually throughout the book, setting Jesus before you in all of His beauty and all of His glory and all of His power, authority and splendor so that you would behold Jesus Christ and your heart would be changed from callous and indifferent and rebellious towards Christ to be passionately engaged in, in continual delight of Him. That is to simply to believe in Christ and to have life in His name is to value Him supremely and to delight in Him. By way of review from last week, we, really, we covered the first 48 verses of the chapter where Jesus said that He is the bread of life. And it was a gripping claim that He made that He is the bread of life, and it, it caused a bit of an issue from those who heard Him. Prior to making those statements, He did a couple of miracles. You may be familiar with the feeding of the 5,000. If you were to add up all the women and children that were there, probably the number would be closer to 20,000. There they are, they're, they're surrounding Jesus and they're coming and following Him based on the healings and the miracles that He has done. And He basically grabs a little boy's lunchbox, grabs the bread, grabs the fish, turns it into an infinite number of uh, amount of food for everyone there and they, they end up gathering up 12 leftover buckets of breadcrumbs. And then what happens is the people, they get all excited, of course, because here's this, this, this man who can do amazing miracles and do all these amazing things and he is fitting in the, in the mold and the shape of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. They know their Bible. They know there's going to be a king that's going to be coming. And they want to take Jesus and they want to make him that king right then and there. Well, Jesus senses their political zeal and sees what's going on. And he retreats back to the mountains to be alone and be away because it is not time for Christ to be inaugurated as the king here in John chapter 6. So we have these Jews, these disciples that are impressed with Jesus' miraculous abilities. They are intrigued by his political potential, but they are quite frankly put off by his theological statements. Specifically, the things that he says about his own sufficiency and his own authority. And, conversely, their own insufficiency and their own rebellion. So the stage is set here for Jesus to continue with this discourse where he is unpacking this really sweet Christological uh, teaching of who He is, who Christ is, and who they are, and how they must respond to Him. And regrettably, we see some negative responses, and we see some positive responses. So where we're going to go today is to look at the second gripping thing that Jesus says in this, in this second gripping declaration that He makes in John 6, and that is that He says, you must eat My flesh. You must eat My flesh, is what Jesus says. And then what we have as a result of this great declaration is a divided response. There are some people 
who turn away from Him. And there are some people that make a great profession. So we'll examine their two responses after that. But let's look first at this first, this, this second point here in John chapter 6. In verses 49 through 58, Jesus says, You must eat my flesh. And we won't re- read all of the verses up front. We'll read through them as we go to save time and to keep the flow going. But Jesus continues in this exuding of patience towards these Jews who are not doing nothing short of mocking him and grumbling against him. They continue to grumble. They continue to question him. They are not believing. And Jesus knows that all the while he becomes a great example for us evangelistically, talking to unbelievers, but then also having great patience with people who would be professing Christians who may have some theological issues that need to get worked out. And frankly, we all have some theological issues that need to get worked out. But we need to exude great patience when we talk to people like our master did. So he continues with this patient explanation, explaining the details that even fuel the metaphor. And he's going to give them even more clear language to undergird the importance of receiving him and him alone as the bread of life. Look with me at verse 49 of chapter 6. Jesus says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So you see the connection immediately. Manna, wilderness, subsequent death. Verse 50, this, however, by contrast, is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. That is, that they will live. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread also which I give for the world, the life of the world, is my flesh. So it's a simple contrast between the bread that the fathers ate in the wilderness and subsequently died, and the bread that Christ gives, which gives eternal life. It's a simple statement about Jesus' own superiority, right? And that is a, that's a problem for the Jews, because now Jesus is saying he's, he's greater than Moses, and he comes down from heaven, and all of these things here about his transcendent holy origins. And, and it's kind of, it's, it's causing issues for these people. Why is the bread supreme? Well, look at verse 50. Consider its source. It says in the Bible, in verse 50, that this is the bread which comes down out of heaven. That is, it is transcendent bread. It doesn't come from the earth. It comes from the heavens. Its origin is heavenly. It has the pedigree of heaven with all of its prevailing holy perfections. It is transcendent bread. Next, look at verse 51. It's nature. It says, I am the living bread. The gathered gathered bread that the the Jews went out to the wilderness to gather was temporary. It spoiled. If they did not eat it that day, it would spoil. And the effects of it even would be temporary. But this bread, Jesus himself, is far superior to this fine, frosty provenance that God littered the Arabian desert with that they were able to meet with every morning and eat. Furthermore, did you catch what Jesus said? He said, I am the living bread. He's the living bread as opposed to the bread that does not give life. And then its effect. The bread which comes down from heaven, verse 50, so that anyone may eat of it and not die. Boy, that, that's good news right there. Because the last time I checked, everybody dies. This is something saying that if you eat this bread, you will not die. Well, sure, he doesn't mean just physical death. Uh, He's getting at the spiritual reality of eternal death. 
I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Well, that is outstanding news. Unlike the, the manna which temporarily satisfied the morning hunger pains, now we have Jesus here that, that, that comes as the bread of life to satisfy the death pains. Oh, now this is, this is good stuff here. This is supreme bread. This is su- supremacy talk here. And Jesus is being crystal clear that He is that bread. If anyone eats this bread, He will live forever. Now that's just got to get your attention right away. You, you just cannot just let these words just bounce off of you. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. Man's greatest need is not the hunger of our stomach, but it is the salvation of our souls. And Jesus Christ here is claiming, and in fact going to be able to deliver, that salvation of human souls. But there's more Jewish grumbling. Look at verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now they're just completely confused. They're arguing with one another about what Jesus is saying and how he can give them flesh to eat. The term used for arguing here is, is not a, a light term. It's a strong term used for a, a, an intense argument. They're, they're not concluding that Jesus is, is, is telling them to become cannibals, but they are, they're having their mind just kind of rocked by what he is saying with regard to eating flesh. They, of course, would understand that Jesus wouldn't be asking them to violate the Old Testament law, the very law which he came to fulfill so that he might provide righteousness for sinners. But they're probably debating over their own understanding of what he's saying. You mean he said this? Well, how does he mean that? How does that work together with what he's saying? So there's some arguing that goes on. But Jesus continues his response back to them in verse 53. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. So Jesus does not back off. In fact, he actually steps on the accelerator a bit and even intensifies the metaphor. Look what it says. Verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. He's really pushing the metaphor for the Jews, and they have a problem with it. He is telling us that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now, we expressed this last week, that the metaphor has already been established in John for what it means to eat his flesh, or what the flesh actually is, or what the bread actually is. You might recall last week, if you look up to verse 35, Jesus explains what the bread is. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So now you see the connection there with the bread of life is actually Jesus. And to eat that bread is to, to come to him, and to believe in him is to, is to drink, because your thirst is satisfied, your hunger is satisfied by coming to him. Furthermore, in verse 40, Look what it says in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So it is this beholding and this believing that Jesus has in mind as the bread of life. Now there are some folks, uh, particularly Roman Catholics, who teach that this passage refers to communion. 
We, of course, would disagree with this, and there are a couple reasons why. But first, we did a little survey the first hour. How many former Roman Catholics in the room? It's amazing, isn't it? The first hour was like two-thirds of the place. That's impressive. I was a former altar boy. I like to tell people that altar boys are good training for being Protestant preachers. Um, but, you know, I, they would take this passage and say that it, it is actually teaching about communion. So, therefore, you have to, you have to come and eat the wafer, which, which the priest miraculously turns into Christ's real flesh and turns the, the wine into real blood. And then they would come down and take it and say, I remember hearing it thousands and thousands of times as an altar boy. This is the body of Christ. And you had to say amen. If you didn't say amen, you didn't get it. And if the guy would happen to drop it, I've got to get my little uh, spatula and catch it because that can't hit the ground. Well, and I'm not in no way belittling. I mean, that's, that's just the way it was. You had to catch it, so you had to put that aside after. Well, why isn't this the bread of life, the communion? And why isn't his flesh communion? Why isn't his blood wine? Well, there's a few reasons, and this question comes up a lot. So let's take a couple of minutes to answer this. First of all, context would tell us that the church hasn't even been established here in John 6. Here we are in John chapter 6. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, much less he has not, the church hasn't been birthed as in Acts chapter 2. So we are looking prior to all of these things and reading the New Testament church back into this passage. This passage has nothing to do with communion per se exactly on how you're supposed to take communion and that sort of thing. Furthermore, the book of John is written to unbelievers. I think that's a good point. It was written evangelistically. It's not a how-to model on how to conduct a church service and what believers are supposed to do within the church body. John chapter 20, verse 31 makes that clear. If this did teach communion, then the thing required for eternal life would be communion. Because you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So that would mean you come to communion to get saved. And Jesus would say, no, that's, that, that didn't totally turn the metaphor on its head. Even verse 63, it says that the spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. So it can't be communion coming and actually drinking material elements and eating material elements that will, turn, will save your soul. That would undermine everything that Jesus is talking about here. And, and finally, and I think most convincingly, the metaphor of the bread and the wine... And believing and beholding have already been established. Look up at verse 40. And we'll see a similar point made. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Now keep your finger next to that verse. And jump down to 54 if they're on the same pages in your Bible. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. These verses are virtually the same. The only difference is you have beholding the Son replaced with eating my flesh in verse 54 and believing in him replaced with drinking my blood. So there's a great corollary between the two. And then finally, I will raise him up on the last day. It seems pretty obvious in the context, consistent with just taking the Bible at its flow, that this has nothing to do with communion, that this has everything to do with believing and beholding in the Son of Man and having life in his name. So it's all about responding to his word, not ingesting or digesting a wafer. That seems to be pretty clear as you look through John chapter 6. But I will say both the Lord's table and John 6 are looking at the same thing. The Lord's table we we take and we look back at the cross. John chapter 6 is looking forward to the cross where he's going to give his life. What Roman Catholics have done, regrettably, is take communion and put it here. So we're all looking towards communion and, and then we are able to receive it there. So, move on. We'll move on. Hopefully, that's helpful. 
and your and your understanding of different religions, and particularly John chapter 6. But what happens if you do not eat this flesh? Look at verse 53. What happens if you do not eat his flesh? Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. This is, this is a great verse to help us to understand who we are. We are not people who possess life in ourselves. Our life is given to us from God. And furthermore, spiritual life, eternal life, is that which God gives to us. So to refuse the life that Christ, and Christ exclusively Christ, offers by coming to Him by faith, is to refuse life at all. According to this passage in John 6 and the teaching of the Bible, Jesus alone is the means for giving life. So to refuse Jesus is to refuse eternal life. That's pretty simple. It's pretty, pretty clear. Jesus, again, just pounding the drum of His own exclusivity. He alone is the exclusive Savior. There is no other way to be saved but by Christ and in Christ alone. He alone has the authority. He alone has sufficiency. And if you do eat His flesh, if you do believe in Him, you do have life. And we developed that last week in quite, de- quite a bit of detail, what it means to believe. It's not just to believe intellectual or historical facts about Jesus. That will not save anybody. But to actually come to Jesus and to take Him at His claims, which would be His exclusivity, His supremacy, His right of authority over your life, and His right of sufficiency, that if you come to Him and you behold Him by faith and you believe in His name, that is, you fully delight in Him and trust in Him and He becomes your purpose in your life and everything, as well as the remission for your sins, and you cling to His righteousness, and you believe everything He says, and you cherish it and you cling to it, And you say, yes, I believe in you, Christ, and I will follow you, Christ, and I love you, Christ. You believe you have life in His name. Because he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, verse 54. You can unpack that verse and say, those who do not eat his flesh and those who do not drink his blood, Christ will not raise up on the last day. Christ, again, the exclusive Savior, the sovereign Savior. Now look at verses 57 and 58. He says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. And you see this connection here between the Father. The Father is the source of all life. There is, there is no life that exists on this whole planet that exists apart from the life source, the Father Himself. And it says here in this text that Christ's very life is sourced in the Father. I live because of the Father. So Christ's life is even in the Father. The Father is granted that He would have life in Himself. So here it is, the Father and the Son right here together with this union. And it is the source of all life. And there is no life apart from this Father and this Christ. And He says, if you eat Me, you will live because of Me. So there's the connection, the Father, the life giver, the the Son, whose life is sourced in the Father, who gives life to all people, who eat Him, who believe. If you do not eat His flesh, you'll die without mercy, but if you eat His flesh, you'll be raised by His mighty power. Pretty clear. Jesus doesn't mince words. He doesn't go around the bush. He is very clear, and He is very radical to these disciples that are following Him. He says, I am the bread of life, and He says, you must eat My flesh. He speaks with clarity. He speaks with passion. He speaks with biblical fidelity. He speaks with love. He speaks with patience. And it had a strange effect on those that were there. 
we'll read in the verses that follow here that many of those who were still digesting the free food that Jesus provided before were not able to stomach the theological words that he, he gave them there. The theological food they choked on. The free food they swallowed. And that becomes a problem for them. And Jesus leveled with them and they did not like it. And the words of Jesus have a similar effect on people today. He speaks truth to people through the scriptures. And people say, ah, I got a problem with that. I got a problem with this exclusivity and this authority and this, this depravity stuff and this sufficiency and this election and all these things. We end up clinging to a different Jesus that's really not a Jesus. So the Word of God acts as a hammer to go around and smash the idols in our heart that we've constructed. A different Jesus that looks more like us than God. And here God is graciously communicating to us who Jesus is and what He believes. Before going on to the, the concluding verses, I just wanted to reiterate something that we looked at last week. Really, what did Jesus say in those first now 59 verses? And I'm just, I put them in some categories and I'm just going to kind of jam through these quickly so we can get it fresh as we go to look at their response. Some of the things that Jesus emphasized were his ultimate authority. He said, I will not look up to anybody on an org chart. I am the supreme savior. I am the one, the only one. He said that all men must believe in him. John 6:29. He is the truth. You must believe in him and he will give eternal life and he and he alone will raise the dead. He also emphasized his exclusivity. He's the exclusive mediator. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He is the exclusive access. Not that anyone has seen the Father, verse 46, except the one who is from God. He is claiming exclusive access to the Father. You cannot get to God apart from Christ. That's what Jesus says. Exclusive power. He alone is the source of life. He said, you don't have any life in yourselves, but I'll raise you from the dead. He's the only one who can raise the dead. He is the exclusive ability to forgive. To put it short, He is the exclusive Savior with exclusive abilities. And He alone is distinguished as the one sufficient, supreme Savior who alone can raise the dead and give life. And He's clear. He emphasizes human depravity by saying things like, You can't come to me unless the Father draws me. It's impossible to come to Christ apart from the attending grace of God. You have no life in yourself. You you could paraphrase in our life, get a life, right? You have no life. You have no life. But I'll give you life. The whole tone here is that they need something. Christ will give it. He emphasized the Father's absolute sovereignty. Again, no one can come to Him except the Father who draws them. I live because of the Father. You will live because of Me. I will raise you up on the last day. He is emphasizing sovereignty. And he also, as we talked about last week, emphasizes sufficiency. You eat his, eat his flesh, you drink His blood, you will live forever. You will never thirst. Well, Jesus delivers this pride-arresting sermon, right? And it was not received very well by these people. And it's their response to which we now turn in the following verses, verses 60 through 66. All he did was say, this is who I am, I'm Jesus. And I got a problem with it. Verse 60. Therefore, pivoting out of what Jesus has said, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? 
They were scandalized by his teaching. They understood that he was speaking figuratively about the bread. They understood him speaking literally about his superiority to Moses. And the fact that he had come down from heaven, that he is different than them, he is holy. And it was more than they could take. These people that were once satisfied by his food were repulsed by Christ's sermon. But the text says that they are disciples. Well, what is a disciple? I'm going to quote a little bit here from a, a Greek lexicon that is helpful, just a Greek dictionary. And it's short and concise and helps, gives us a, so it narrows our time so we don't have to do an extensive word study. The term translated disciple in general usage denoted a pupil or a learner, one who received instruction from a teacher. The vast majority of the 264 New Testament occurrences of this term refer to persons who were a disciple of Jesus. However, there were three distinct uses of the term, one of the referring to the twelve. They were Christ's closest companions. Two, it's also referred to true believers. All true believers are called disciples. And thirdly, there's another category. These are the temporary followers, those with imperfect faith, those who really did not follow Christ. The term disciple means a learner, but it does not always denote a true believer. A believer is always a disciple, but a disciple is not always a believer. Jesus would say in John chapter 8, verse 31, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you also bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. But these many of these disciples, and I would take these based upon their actions, to be the third type, those who are temporary followers, who kind of walked with Jesus, but they really were not completely down with Jesus. They were down with his miracles, they were down with the free lunch, and they, they liked the idea of, of, the, of their political party becoming the king, but they were not really with all of his statements concerning himself and them. So they said, this is a difficult statement. The word translated difficult in the New American Standard here is scleros. It's from the same root where we get our similar sounding English word skeleton. So you see here there's a connection in terms of the hardness of their response. It's difficult, but it even carries more flavor than that. Scleros has a meaning of harsh, unpleasant, or intolerable. In short, in a context like this, it means that Jesus' teaching is offensive. It's intolerant teaching. So they're listening to what Jesus is saying, and they're saying, this is, a, this is pretty intolerant stuff. This is harsh stuff. This is narrow-minded stuff. Who can understand it? Sounds like these guys are writers for the editorial page of the New York Times. Sounds like they are the great-grandfathers of the modern-day religious and evangelical liberal movement. Oh, it's offensive stuff. We like his teaching in terms of his humility. We like his sacrifice. We like his love. We like his kindness. We like his statements about thou shalt not judge. But this eat my flesh and I am the bread of life stuff is offensive. Well, Jesus, the ever omniscient one, is dialed into their unspoken thoughts and he knows exactly what's going on in there and he answers them in verse 61. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled, again, they are consistent grumblers, if you are a consistent grumbler, you might be one of these guys. Said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? 
This is actually pretty amazing. These pretentious disciples had trouble with these offensive or these hard or these difficult words. And so they, as Jesus said, they stumbled upon them. It's the Greek word scandalon. It's used repeatedly throughout the Gospels to describe an offended response to Jesus. For instance, Matthew chapter 15, verse 12. The disciples came and said to him, said to Jesus, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? It's like, do you not know that they were scandalized by what you said? Do you know you've offended the religious leaders? So in light of their offense, and because of these intolerant or these harsh Offensive words, as they would put it. Jesus asked them an interesting question. Verse 62. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? If this causes you to be offended, what are you going to do when you see a bigger offense that's coming? Here Jesus refers to the Son of Man ascending to where He was before. What, What is He referring to by this? In the book of John, the ascension of Jesus to where he was before is always tied to the cross. It's the first step. If you just hold your finger in John 6, then flip back to John chapter 3, we can see a picture of this here. John chapter 3, in the midst of this discourse with Nicodemus, the context of salvation and how you are to receive faith and does he be born again he says in verse 13 no one has ascended to heaven but he was descended from heaven the son of man as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so the son of man must be lifted up this ascension talk so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life so we have the return of christ to heaven where he was tied directly to the cross his death his burial his resurrection and ascension all tied back to him being lifted up. Here, specifically, the cross. You can go ahead and flip back to John chapter 6, if you would. Jesus is, in effect, saying, Are you offended by a walking metaphor of bread and flesh and blood? What are you going to do when the cross comes? What are you going to do with the real scandal on? The real offense? What are you going to do with a crucified God? That's the real stumbling block. For just as 1 Corinthians says, verse one, chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, a scandal on, to the Jew, to Gentiles, foolishness. What are you going to do when the cross comes? Let's just get it over with now, guys. Why don't you just leave? It's basically what he's saying. You can't handle this. You'll never handle the cross. John MacArthur wrote helpful commentary on this, this idea here when he was unpacking the shamefulness of the cross and I want to read a couple paragraphs to you because I think he does a good job succinctly explaining what went on on the cross and why it is shameful he writes the idea that anybody who died on a cross was in a sense an exceptional elevated noble or important person was absolutely bizarre Roman citizens generally were exempt from crucifixion unless they'd committed treason the cross was reserved for rebellious slaves and conquered people and for notorious robbers and assassins. The Roman Empire policies on crucifixion led Romans to view any crucified person as an absolutely contemptible individual. It was reserved for the scum, the most humiliated, the lowest of the low. No wonder these people who wanted to make him king would stumble at the cross. There was first, MacArthur writes, flogging, and then there was the carrying of the cross. 
the beam. And then there was a sign around the neck indicating the crime. And the, the criminal was stuck naked. And then they were tied or nailed to the crossbar. And it was hoisted into an upright post. And they were suspended there in nakedness. Death could not be hurried. Death could be hurried if they shattered their legs because they would push themselves up in order to fill their lungs with air. If the legs weren't broken, death could be prolonged for days. The final indignity was leaving the corpse up there until all of the birds ate it. Jesus says, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with the cross? In addition to the means of the cross being offensive, the message of the cross is, is offensive. It's offensive because Jesus would say in the cross, you lack spiritual ability. You lack spiritual credibility. You lack the spiritual uh, value. You need forgiveness. Furthermore, the forgiveness that you need and that is available only through Christ and His death, you don't want. And you will not come. And you have no ability to come. But it is available through the most humiliating and personally degradable means, a Roman crucifixion. You want crucifixion? You want forgiveness? You must be humiliated. If you want forgiveness, you must be humiliated. You must be humiliated by your rebellion to the point that you see the God who humiliated Himself upon the bloodstained cross as altogether wise, altogether lovely, and altogether worthy of your worship. That is to see the cross and see its power. You go from tripping on the cross as foolishness and as ridiculously shameful to seeing the cross as gloriously beautiful. Because the great and exalted King humbled Himself to the point of death that He might be exalted so that you, when you stare at it, you'll be humiliated that He might exalt you. That is to see it it's in its power. But Jesus does not flinch. Verse 63, He says, It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus here, as He's speaking, He's speaking the life-giving Word. As attended by the Holy Spirit, it is Spirit and it is life. As Jesus, if I could use a contemporary analogy of your laptop, pinging a wireless signal for a connection. He is pinging their hearts with the truth. He's pinging them. He's pinging them. And what do they get? Nothing but a a firewall. A spiritually hard firewall that you cannot connect. Jesus says, my words are are spirit and they are life. Jesus speaks the life-giving word. His emphasis here and throughout John 6 is on the word. It's not on a wafer. It is on the word that gives life. What does that do for your view of the Bible? The words of Christ, not just the ones in red in your Bible, but all the words that Christ inspired are life. But he says in verse 64 and 65, there are some of you who do not believe. In the midst of the life, in the midst of the life-giving words that I'm speaking to you, you are, you are putting up a spiritual stiff arm in my face. And you're saying, no, stop it. I don't want to hear it. Just please stop with all of this. It's offensive. It's difficult. And apart from the sovereign arresting power of divine grace, that stiff arm remains. And there are some who do not believe. I think about this verse, and I... I think of a slideshow of people in the last five years that I know of that have just walked away from the faith. Just completely turned away from Christ and walked and they have, they have, they have departed from Christ. Even tonight, we have a church discipline matter, family matter that we need to take care of. Matthew chapter 18. 
where someone has persisted in sin and he is, he's, he's totally turned away from Christ and he's gone headlong into sin. He's, going to, he's continuing in this sin and he will not repent. That is someone that I myself have spent hours with teaching the Bible. And many of you spent hours with this individual over long periods. And he says, forget it. I don't think so. There are some of you who do not believe. And I bounce that ball to you and say, there's some of you who do not believe. There, there are people who have sat in these very seats here who are no longer here anymore. And they, if you were to go up to them today and say, do you believe? They'd say, I do not believe. But you once sat there. I do not believe. Oh, that is scary and frightening. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who would not believe and who would betray Him. That's why verse 66 says, For this reason I've said to you that no one can come to Me unless it's been granted by the Father. No one can come to Christ apart from the sovereign, life-giving grace of God. And we see the ultimate display of disbelief in verse 66. As a result, many of His disciples withdrew and they were not walking with Him anymore. The raging, zealous, buzzing crowd has now dwindled. They've gotten close enough to Jesus to really understand what He means and what He's all about. Only to find that He offends them greatly. What they wanted, F.F. Bruce says, He would not give. And what what He offered, they would not receive. This should be one of the most haunting verses in all of the Bible. They looked into the eyes of Jesus. They heard His words. They evaluated Him. And what was their verdict? He has no value for me. I do not care to follow Him. He is not worthy of my worship. I might as well just turn away and go somewhere else because I can't take Him. This is a morbid picture that the result of God allowing folks to have exactly what they want and not attending His Word with His Spirit and His grace It is to let us get what we want. It is not to attend them with the restraining grace and saving grace that would would enable a life to live in obedience and love for Christ and to keep Christ beautiful. And some might say, well, I simply do not believe because God has not drawn me. That is why I'm no longer walking with Him or that is why I will not walk with Him. Well, is this true? Let me ask you why you need to be drawn in the first place. Why do you need to be drawn in the very first place? Is it not because you will not come yourself? And why won't you come? Because you do not believe. You do not supremely value, delight, and trust in Jesus. As John chapter 3 says, Men love darkness rather than a light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. They hate the light. They love evil. Hate light. The reason why people will die and go to hell is not the lack of election, but the presence of sin and the love for sin. If you remain unconverted this morning, it is the conscience and ongoing drive of your own affections and your own love for yourself and your sin that keeps you from Jesus Christ, not the want of God drawing you. If God were to attend His Word with His sovereign and saving grace, He would give you not what you want, but what you don't want. And in the midst of giving you what you don't want, He would make you want it and love it. That is sovereign power. That is sovereign grace. To take the sinner who goes like this to God 
and change their life. So he goes like this to God. Praise be his name. If you're sitting here this morning blaming your lack of faith and your rebellion on a God who will not elect you, that just shows how perverted your view of God and your own sin is. It is to hate your sin that will make you run to Christ. And if you leave your sin, you will find Christ. And if God attends His Word by His grace and His power, He too will make Christ beautiful to you and you will say nothing but Abba, Father. And you will praise and you will love this Christ. But there is no such sovereign work going on. Here the unbelieving hearts of the crowd speak loudly in their devaluation of Jesus Christ and their overall offense of His words. So now the crowd leaves. It dissipates. And what you have is the Savior standing there with at least His twelve. Perhaps a few others. Maybe not. And how do they respond to what He has said? To the twelve we turn here as we conclude. And their response, Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away also, do you? And the way it's phrased in the Greek New Testament anticipates the negative response. You don't want to go away too, do you? Look at them all go. You can hear their feet shuffling off, leaving, grumbling, probably louder than ever. You want to go too? No. I bounce that ball to you. You don't want to go too, do you? There are footprints out that door of apostates. Jesus Christ, through His Word, do you want to go too? You don't want to go too, do you? You too have heard of what Jesus has said about His exclusive power, His exclusive authority, the need for you to respond to Him by faith, to behold and to believe in Him and to value Him chiefly and to love and to follow Him. You don't want to go too, do you? Peter, in true Petrian form, answers And what sounds like, before Jesus could even finish, loudly he says in verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you and you alone are the Holy One of God. Oh, Peter, yes! He says, you are authoritative. He says, Lord. He says, you are exclusive. He says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He claims sufficiency. You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Your supremacy. Jesus isn't just distinct from sin. He is distinct from everything. He's altogether holy. Peter gets it right. I remember the story of Charles Spurgeon who one morning closed his Bible. He said, some people say I speak too much of Jesus and His sufficiency, His supremacy. He closed his Bible. He says, I have nothing to say to you. Will science answer the mother who has lost her child? What will science say or naturalism say to somebody who's, who's born with a deformity? What will somebody say to the trials and the heartache that comes into life? What will you answer such a person? When somebody asks you, what will happen to me when I close my eyes and breathe my last breath? What do you say to them? If I close this book, I have nothing to say. If you turn Jesus Christ away, there's nothing. But Peter says, who who should we go? Who has an answer? Who else can raise the dead? Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else can satisfy the soul? Who else is the Holy One of God? Who else has come down from heaven that He might bring us up to heaven? Who else? 
There's nobody else. There's nobody else. Jesus alone and His unrivaled supremacy, beauty, glory, and splendor as the sufficient Savior and King stands gloriously independent as the Savior. But Jesus answers His twelve in verses 70 and 71. and said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? Now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas, of course, later on, as John would say, Satan would enter him and he would leave Christ and he would betray him for some pocket change. Jesus knew that all the while. I think it's intended to be hanging like that so that we would engage in some serious introspection about who we love and who we cherish. And everyone in this room can find ourselves in the narrative in John chapter 6. We're here. Every one of us. I'm convinced of it. Some of you are those who walk in step with the Jesus crowd. Go to church. Talk to talk. Maybe have a couple t-shirts. Some books. Maybe listen to Christian radio. You're, you're down with the scene. You are following Jesus and that's what people would think. But if you... Pull back the veneer. Truth be told, you have some serious issues with what Jesus says. His sovereignty, exclusivity, supremacy, sufficiency, election, depravity, things like that are just too much to take. You find yourself agreeing more like those disciples and say, this is hard stuff. Who can understand it? A bit scandalized by it. People like this don't like to pray. Don't like to read their Bibles. Don't like to evangelize. Don't like to talk about the Lord. Don't like to to study. Don't like to marvel at Jesus. And the frighteningly scary thing here is that if you're in this group, you too will walk away. If God is not gracious to apprehend your soul by His sovereign power. If you're in this group, you will walk away. Second group of people, some of you might be like Judas. Judas. In church leadership, so to speak. Judas had a job. He watched the money. He was one of the guys, one of the boys. So you might be in church leadership. You might be active in ministry. You might lead a ministry here. You might have led ministry at other places. You might be a pastor at another church. You might be a pastor here. But in due time, If you are in the group with Judas, you will show that you are not a genuine follower. You'll sell out your pretentious loyalties for whatever price your own heart desires. That's what Judas did. Judas is sobering to Christians. Some of you, hopefully the majority, are like Peter, a third group. And your heart cannot restrain itself. You just want to uncork with this unmitigated delight and agreement with Jesus. You just want to come to His defense and exclaim how great He is. You recognize His unrivaled supremacy and sufficiency and authority and power. You see your own depravity and you humbly cling to His grace that God has given to you when He first made Jesus Christ irresistible to your sin-laden conscience. So you too cling to Jesus with humble and happy joy and contentment and delight. You're like Peter. 
And you bless His name and you love Him. But each of us are here somewhere in John 6. And just like the characters in the narrative, Jesus knows your hand. Perhaps better than you do. He knows what you're up to. He knows what you're about. So it's good to read this passage and see people walk away and see people stand firm and to find ourselves, where are we at in this? And if we're clinging to the grace of God, we're like Peter. If we have turned, if our hearts are not delighting in Him, we're probably going to be like the other guys. It's sobering. He reminds you that the purpose of John's gospel was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you will have life in His name wherever you are and whoever you are. The necessary response to John chapter 6 is that you would believe, that you would believe, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And believing you will have life in His name. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for John chapter 6 and the way it is so clear so convicting, so heart-searching. Truly, indeed, if we're Christians, we search our heart and we, we wonder why we would be Christians in the first place if it weren't for your grace. We're so thankful that you chose us because we would never choose you. Father, not just the grace that calls us to Christ, but the grace that keeps us in Christ. You, indeed, keep us. You preserve us. And you make your will to keep us, our will to stay. And we know it is that same grace that will raise us up on the last day with blameless and great joy before your presence, even at your right hand. And we will exclaim your glories and sing of your grace for all eternity. We'll never tired of singing of your grace as we behold your great Son. Oh, Father, make us, make us echo Peter's words every day to our own souls. For Christ alone has the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? Indeed, He is glorious. May He grow in His preciousness to our own souls, even today and in days ahead. In Jesus' name, Amen.